this is a this is a powerful passage of scripture, isn't it? Whatever happens, this is my translation. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I'll I'll be completely candid with you. If this passage had landed on any other weekend, you would probably be getting a very different sermon out of me. But as I prepared for today, I could not, actually, I cannot get the reality of yesterday out of my head. If you're not aware, yesterday was our National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Sometimes we call it Orange Shirt Day. Uh, The mantra is often, every child matters. It's a day where we, as a nation, we stop and remember the harm that we have caused to indigenous people groups and indigenous people. Uh, And if you've been following along, you'll know that the church has a massive role to play in this story. The church has a massive role to play in the hurt and the harm that occurred. Residential schools, the 60s scoop, unmarked graves, this is our legacy. So, I look at these words, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and the thing that plays in my head is, we haven't. And, and, and this isn't just some far distant past, right? Like many of you were alive and well while these things were happening, and I say that with confidence because I am young, and I was alive and well when the last residential school closed. It was in 1996 in Saskatchewan. And I, I might not have participated in that. I was four years old in 1996, if any of you want to do math. Um, <coughs> but I know, if I look at my own self and my own story, I grew up with very specific views of indigenous people. And I, I can't speak for you, but I am now acutely aware of how the perspectives that I held and the prejudices that I even sometimes repeated are things of which I need to repent. I got this very wrong. I did not conduct myself in a way that was worthy of the gospel. And I expect that I'm not the only person in the room for whom this is true. Maybe I am. Maybe all of you are much holier than me. That could be the case. (laughs) I got some laughs, so perhaps not. Some shaking of heads. (laughs) But even if that is the case, if you are a part of the body of Christ, if you're a Christian, we carry this history with us. This is the history of our family. We walk with a limp because of this. Because we didn't follow the advice of Paul to the church in Philippi. That's the truth. It ain't pretty. And it certainly doesn't feel like it sets us free, as the truth is supposed to do, right? But actually, I think it does. Or rather, I think that it can. Because what really happens is we end up at a question, right? If... we end up at this question, if we have not conducted ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, if we believe that that's true, then how do we begin to do so now? Today, what does it look like for us to live lives worthy of the gospel? Specifically, what does it look like for us to do that in light of the ways that we and others before us have failed to do so? And I have a few thoughts. And I believe the passage actually gives us some clarifying advice as we read on through. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read straight through verses 27 and into 28, just 28a, the first half of it there, and we'll see what we find. So it says this, it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm 
in the one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Stop there for a second. I know the verse goes on, but there's something that comes out very quickly. And, and it, was actually, it was actually a theme of our passage last week, if you were here as well. These words, striving together as one faith for the gospel without being frightened. Here's the truth. Fear is a great obstacle to the truth. It is, right? Why do we lie? Why do we cover things up? Why do we minimize? We're scared, right? Scared of the consequences that might come. And as a result... Fear is also a great obstacle to the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> now, I want you to hold that idea in your mind for a moment, right? Fear is a great obstacle to the gospel. Hold that in your mind. I'm going to take a detour, if you'll indulge me. We're going to talk briefly about some research done by a man named John Gottman on the topic of relationships. So Gottman is the world's leading researcher on relationships. He can observe, this is true, he can observe a married couple take talking for a short time, like, like a 15, 20-minute conversation. He can observe them, go through, do his linguistic analyses and these sorts of things, look at the body language, whatever, and then predict whether they will get a divorce in the next seven years with over 90% accuracy. Actually, one of the studies, it was a 98% accuracy, and it was because two people that he said wouldn't get a divorce also got a divorce. So with, with a very, very high accuracy. His research is so good that they actually use it to analyze communications between countries to predict the possibility of war breaking out. Like this is, this is his research. It's very, very good research. And one of his key findings is what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse in a relationship. These, uh, the, these things, if they are present in a relationship, are evidence of a relationship breakdown. And they are as follows. There's four things. One, criticism. Yeah, okay, yeah. Second, contempt. Yeah, well, yeah, that'd be bad news, right? The third, defensiveness. And the fourth is stonewalling. You're just like, we're not going to engage at all anymore. That's, that's real bad news. He's like, once you're there, it's a yikes moment. Although, <laughs> I won't go into detail of all of these, though I would commend his book to you, to any, any person uh, in a relationship. He's got a book called Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Uh, I would recommend that to just about any couple. Whether you are in a good place or a difficult place in your marriage, it's an amazing resource. Like, really, really good. Highly recommend. Um, but I want to turn our eyes to one of these four horsemen in particular, defensiveness. When someone raises an accusation or criticism, and it's worth noting, like, Gottman makes a distinction between criticism and complaint, like those are different things. So if you're thinking, I never say anything I'm disappointed with, that's not what he's saying. But uh, when someone does raise an accusation or a criticism, um, when someone says something like that, our gut impulse, and I think it's a very human thing to do, our gut impulse is almost always to self-protect, Right? to be defensive, to minimize the harm or just redirect away from it by providing examples of all the good that we do. Oh, you know, I know that, you know, I said that thing when I was frustrated, but like, look at yesterday, like I took the dog out for a walk, I like cooked us dinner, I did, you know, like this is defensiveness. It's refusing to acknowledge what's said, redirecting to something else, trying to make ourselves look good. Um, when that happens, uh, it's, it's a very normal thing, very human thing to do. Uh, when we want to do everything except confront the wrong that's been placed in front of us, right? The Gottman would say that this behavior essentially ends the conversation, makes the other person feel unheard, and stops the potential of any forward motion. Actually, what he recommends you do 
when this stuff happens in a relational you know, conflict, take a break and come back. He's like, listen, you're not in a place to have, like, whoop, come back, leave, come back, start the conversation over. <laughs> that's, your, that's what you should be doing in that moment. Um, hope of anything productive. Once defensiveness, once these four horsemen rear their head, uh, it gets very, very low. So actually what happens usually is the conversation escalates into something bigger, an argument with an outburst, and it eventually leads to you know, the most relational, dangerous territory of all, stonewalling, where one of the parties just refuses to engage the conversation anymore. But when accusation or criticism or complaint arises, we do have another option. It can feel like defensiveness is the only way out, but there is another way. It's a deeply Christian term, confession, where defensiveness shuts down a a conversation, confession blows the doors wide open. But there's a catch, right? Confession is deeply vulnerable. It requires of us immense courage. So let's back up a minute to that thing that I asked you to hold in your head earlier. Fear is a great obstacle to the gospel. In my own life, there has been nothing that required more courage, that required more dispelling of fear than confession. Fear drives us to defensiveness, to self-protection, possibly even to stonewalling. Fear can push us to point fingers, to accuse others. It can generate contempt. Courage helps us to step into confession. It can help us to be vulnerable. It calls us into vulnerability. It can can challenge us to confront our shame and to name our failures. Courage used in this way can bring about the restoration of relationships. Or at the very least, it can create fertile ground where this is possible. So here's where this becomes about living lives that are worthy of the gospel. Because living lives in light of the gospel means that we know and trust and put our faith not in our own ability to be good or righteous. Not in our own ability to make wise decisions or even to protect our reputations. The good news of the gospel is that even when we are not enough, even when we have failed, our God is still good, right? We can have courage, we can walk in confession, not because we'll be perfectly protected from the consequences of our actions, but because we know that whatever comes will not be the end of the story. The truth is, it is very possible that there will be suffering and loss in response to our sin. That's true. But through confession, we can till the ground and make it ready for seeds of hope. When we choose defensiveness, we are ruled by fear, right? We are taking onto our shoulders God's responsibility, (laughs) right? You think about that, really. What are we doing when we're trying to, especially in the matter of truth and reconciliation, we think about this and the church's role and we kind of go, wow, you know, know, Christians at that time, they didn't know any better or they, they, they thought you know, they thought that they were doing something good, evangelistic, or, you know, like, ah, it was just a few bad actors, or whatever the story might be that we tell ourselves or others. What are we trying to do? We are taking on the responsibility of protecting God's reputation. But that's not our job. We are trying to protect our protector. That's not how things work. God is our refuge and strength. 
He is our ever-present hope in times of trouble. We are not his hope, right? He is ours. He is the one through whom we are able to be without fear. And this is the super wonky thing about how our God works. Our weakness is actually precisely the place where God's strength is made perfect, right? In 1 Timothy, Paul does this really cool thing to talk about and think about confession. Here's Paul leading us in it. 1 Timothy, he's, he just, in this passage, he's just listed out all of these different sins. Really awful stuff. He, you know, like there was bad things that were happening. Matricide, patricide, different kinds of sexual immorality, slave trading, you name it. All of these things are happening. Paul's talking about them. And then a few verses later, this is what he says. I love this. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. All of those sins in mind. All of those sins held in our perspective. He's listed them all. And then right after he goes, and I'm the worst of them all. That's me, Paul. Good to meet you. <laughs> right? Paul's been forgiven. He's been saved. Why would he still identify with his sin? That doesn't make any sense, right? We've been made new. He could be saying, now listen, that's in the past. God forgave me, so you don't dare hold that against me. That's not where he goes. Instead, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. Instead, he chooses the brave option of confession. And he can do that because he knows that confession opens doors and sparks connections. It sparks compassion. It ignites, creates opportunity for love to begin. Confession makes for fertile soil. And he does it without fear because he knows that he's been saved. That while his sinfulness is a part of the story, it is not the end of the story. So if we want to live lives worthy of the gospel, it means we must be a community of confession. Confession is the ultimate gospel thing that we do. It's this immense act of surrender to God. It takes enormous faith and courage, and it creates holy ground. It disarms weapons, it restores relationships, and it makes a way forward for communication and healing. A few years ago, our denomination, the Free Methodist Church of Canada, wrote and uh, presented a repudiation of the doctrine of discovery. Uh, and basically what that means in layman's terms is that they formally went through a process of saying how they disagree with the theological concepts that the church used in the past as a means to bring harm to indigenous communities all over the world, and specifically here in Canada. And as a part of that, they actually wrote this prayer that congregations could include in their liturgy, and it's called a settler's prayer. And it is a prayer of confession. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead us in that this morning. It's a long-ish prayer, so I won't have you read the whole thing with me. But at the beginning and at the end of it, we pray the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to have the words of the Lord's Prayer up on the screen. And you can pray that along with me. Um, but I'd encourage you to, to, to listen, to follow along in the rest of the prayer, and to examine your own hearts as I pray it. And pray it along with me in your own hearts. Uh, as you feel able. So let's begin by praying together the Lord's Prayer. It says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You, O Lord, are our common creator. All people are united in ancestry and origin in your name. Our differences and distinctions reflect the wonder of your love. Your way, your truth, and your life has come. It has been revealed, and it moves like a mighty river. We desire to flow with your streams and be washed by your waves. But we confess we have tried to control the current. We have constructed barriers, claimed ownership, and brought destruction and death to your garden and your people. You have given us the bread of life and the land to share, but we have planted sin in your soil and spilled poison in your water. Please forgive us. Please teach us to confess and to receive forgiveness from others. Teach us to be reconciled. Lead us, O Lord, in your ways of covenant and treaty, stewardship and sacred union. Deliver us from the evil of ignorance and indifference. For you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life for the here and now, and for all of eternity. And together again, we'll pray the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, we have lived lives that were not worthy of the gospel. How can we move forward? How can we choose to do so now? My conviction is that it's through confession, looking at our mistakes and learning from them. And we have such a neat example that happened in our church this week. It's like super cool. As Chrissy was planning, uh, what are we going to do with the kids, right? What are we going to do with the kids this Sunday at the back of the church? What might we do? Um, and she knew that, you know, I was thinking about truth and reconciliation happening on Saturday, our national day, and observed on Monday, and we talked about that. And so I was thinking, well, what can we do that would be honoring and respectful of indigenous people? So she called the local indigenous center, and she explained who she was and asked her questions. And do you know what the, other, the woman on the other side of the phone did, the woman who was working there? After she said, oh, yeah, I'm from church, and you know, I want to you know, maybe do something that could be honoring and respectful of indigenous culture, like you know, this and that. Uh, the, the woman on the other side of the phone, she wept. The idea to her that Christians, that a church would be mindful, would consider them, would come and ask for wisdom to be sensitive to the feelings of indigenous people as we planned our activities, this moved her deeply, right in her heart. And I really believe, like, this was an act of confession, right? Chrissy goes and she says, hey, I know the church has gotten this wrong in the past, and we don't want to do that again. Help us. And that confession created fertile ground for relational encounter. And the woman gave a really beautiful activity for us to take part in. She said that we could have the kids do artwork surrounding the feather. 
And uh, this is the, and, and she explained the significance of it. So feathers, I have one up here, actually. So I asked Raven, hey, do you have a feather at home that you could bring? Um, and uh, she brought she brought this one. <laughs> I don't know if you can see that. <laughs> and then outside of the church, in the <laughs> in the parking lot, she picked this one up. <laughs> that was a little nice. Um, uh, but feathers, in many indigenous traditions, uh, they represent family. The quill, the central shaft, uh, that's representative of those who have gone before us, grandparents back further and further through the generations. And then the barbs, the, the part I would call the fluffy part, I don't know, the barbs, uh, those are us, children. And together, in one feather, you see all of these many different parts of the family. And it's significant because much of the harm that the church caused towards indigenous people in Canada was tearing families apart, right? The feathers that our kids are, you know, coloring and drawing today, um, they're, a paint, they're a picture of hopefulness, of wholeness. But I think it's also, it's also a significant because it's a beautiful confession of what we believe but did not live out. We prayed it in the prayer, we are all God's beautiful creation with one common ancestor, our Lord, right? Believe that, you know, we prayed earlier, it said, "You, O Lord, you are our common creator. All people are united in ancestry and origin in your name. All the barbs are attached to a stem that finds its root in our creator, God. We bear his image. We come together as members of his family drawn into unity. Did you notice that part of today's text? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And as I thought about these ideas and this image, it brings me to the picture of the table, right? We all come to the table, no matter where we are from, our background, what we've done, we all come with our confessions. And we come not to bring something of our own, but actually to receive. To receive a gift from the one who calls us his beloved children. All of us part of God's family. All of us welcome, no matter what our stories may be. Today, we get to take part in this unifying Christian practice of remembering and proclaiming the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And it's sacred, right? If you're new here, I'll let you know, um, as free Methodists, we do not guard this table. We have what we call an open table. What that means is that if you are a Christian, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, you are welcome to take part in this sacred ritual of eating bread and taking the cup and remembering the body of Christ which was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us, by which we have received freedom. I'm going to invite you up in a moment to come and to get your communion pack. But I just wanted to give a little bit of instruction first. One of the things that we're encouraged to do as we prepare for communion is to examine our hearts. And so I want you to take some time to examine yours. To confess to Jesus what you might need to confess. Trusting that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when you're through your prayer and confession, I'd ask you to just sit in God's presence for a little bit and wait. And I'll come up and I'll, I'll lead us as we all actually eat the bread together 
as one, and we drink the cup together as one. So the idea that was running around in my head as I, as I wrote this sermon was this National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And what we've talked about today was the first part of that, right? Truth. Confession is leaning into truth. It requires of us great bravery. But that second part, reconciliation, I really haven't spent much time on. But I hope that as we lean into truth, as we walk in confession, that we would be called into action, into being the body of Christ, into living lives that are worthy of the gospel. And there's this song that's been playing in my head. Um, we, uh, I almost, a couple weeks ago, had us do it as a benediction together, and then I didn't. And then we had our, our prayer time two weeks ago uh, on, on the Tuesday, and again, it, this, this song kind of rose to the surface, and I just grabbed my guitar and said, can we just sing this? And we sang this song together. And I think it actually, the song in itself is an invitation. It's a confession. It's a picture of what it would look like for us to do that. And there's this picture of unity, but also this repeated line, they will know we are Christians by our love. I think that's what it looks like. If we are living lives faithful, worthy of the gospel, they will know, right? All of those around us, they will know we are Christians, and they will know of it by the way that we love. So maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. This is our benediction today. Uh, we're going to sing this song together. I am not, <laughs> we didn't have a piano player come. Um, I'm not a real piano player, but I'm a pretend one. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> um, and the words should be on the screen. It's, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. Uh, so let's let's just uh, sing this together. I ask you to stand, um, and this is a, this is our benediction. This is what we leave with. Uh, I encourage you to to sing along, but also to to hold these words in your heart as you go from this place. So, we are one in the spirit.
Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.